If you're interested in garden photography, and not just snapping some shots of your garden, but if you're interested in the art of garden photography, then you'll be interested in our show today with Matthew Benson, an expert garden photographer. The photographic garden, mastering the art of digital garden photography, isn't really a technical manual. It's an aesthetic manual, an artistic guide that teaches people how to use photography as a means of telling a story. And it's easy to see Matthew in his photographs. He edits a garden to communicate a particular point of view and treats every photograph as if it were a still life painting. If you look at the photographs, if you find them in a magazine, you would not be confused with any other shooter. And I'm speaking with uh, Matthew, I believe, at his farm. He lives on a small farm in New York's Hudson River Valley. And I, I want to tell you, Matthew, I want to welcome you first to Ken Drew's Real Dirt. Very good. Nice to talk to you, Ken. Nice to talk to you, too. I want to tell you that your text is as pleasingly aesthetic as your photographs. Thank you. Thanks very much. You are so welcome. Uh, I, I really like this book. And uh, it's, it's a surprise to me because, uh, you know, when there, there are several books on photographing gardens. And most of them really start with charts <laughs> and <Yeah. laughs> uh, this and that. And uh, that's not exactly your approach. Uh, but I want to talk to you about the process, not necessarily of producing the book, which we will get to, too. But when you arrive at a garden, what are the things that you look for? Well, I have to say, um, the first thing I'm always looking for is the light. I'm pretty obsessed with light and sort of the impressionistic qualities of light. And if I'm, if I'm working with a few people and they have a shot list of things they want from the garden, I always have to remind them that we're following the light around the garden and looking where it first, you know, hits the perennial borders and hits annuals and transmits through, through leaves and trees. And so I'm, the first thing I'm looking for is where is the light? Um, and I, I've started using my, my iPhone app with my compass on it now, even on shoots, which is great. Wow. Um, because light really defines for me what's beautiful. Um, you know, even the most modest garden in beautiful light will look better than a really, really gorgeous, um, expensive, thought-through garden in bad light. Well, it's funny because I was thinking as I'm reading your book that uh, you could have what I might call the 430 rule. Arrive at the garden at 4.30 a.m., shoot, <laughs> go shopping, return at 4.30 p.m. for more. <laughs> Spend a day at the beach. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, it is true. When I'm on location and, and I call the, the front desk and I say I need a 4 a.m. wake-up call, and they always ask me to repeat that. You know? <laughs> they think I have, might have a flight to catch. But actually, we're getting up that early because the quality of light in that kind of early morning gloaming, I mean, there's a lot of reasons that light is beautiful. In part, it's because... Uh, the actual quality of, of the light and, and the lowness of it and the length of the shadows across the garden as the sun emerges. But it's also this moment of kind of suspension when you're, when you're really not supposed to be awake. And there's something magical about being in the world when, when everyone else is not in it. And, and it's just you and this beautiful space and a, and a few birds waking up and starting to chirp and, and petals beginning to glow and I think any real passionate gardener has to, in some way, be a romantic and love, love the romance of, of, of those qualities, of those dimensions in the garden. And when I photograph a garden, I'm always looking, you know, not for this two-dimensional rendering. I'm always looking for something richer and deeper and fuller and more dimensional in terms of sound, in terms of reflection, in terms of 
um, qualities qualities that you know that come through almost outside the camera that you have to feel through the image. Um, so yeah, that time of day is is a wonderful, wonderful time of day. Well, you've written in the book, uh, remember that you are always making self-portraits to some degree. And I guess you're starting to tell yeah. me about that. I, I talk to gardeners, even not photographers, and I, well, I personally don't want to see a garden in the bright light of the middle of the day on a sunny day because uh, yeah. it's so contrasty. You can't see anything, although the weeds you can sort of see. I don't know why, but the weeds pop out. But I've talked to people about touring <laughs> gardens and saying, "Oh, I wish it were overcast." And you know, when the when the weather person on the radio or the TV says, "Another beautiful day," I just want to scream, <laughs> "Give me a cloud!" And yeah, yeah. some people yeah. I've talked to, they start to get it. It's it's not just for photography; it's also just for even seeing a garden. But it, as the day goes on, when it hits seven a.m. or seven thirty, when you have to think about stopping. If you have contrasty shadows, how do you deal with that? Yeah, I mean, I think you you begin in the garden with the, the broadest shots you can can think of, the sort of overall garden view, because you want as much of the real estate in the garden to be beautiful. And and early in the morning, you know, doing these big, wide, open, establishing shots is is, is your best best time. And then as as the light starts heating up and parts of the garden get too contrasty and bright, you start moving into those areas that are still in sort of dappled or transmissive light. And then as the light continues to wash out, you might find yourself in indirect light somewhere in the shadows working on, you know, shooting hoppas and ferns somewhere under a tree. And then when it really starts just um, getting too bright and too hot, um, what we'll often do is shoot botanical portraits at that, at that point. And um, either on my own, um, which I, sh I shoot a lot without assistance lately because I'm using smaller cameras and it's digital and it's much easier uh, and faster to work. Um, you use reflectors or you use silks, which is a transmissive kind of scrim that comes in a, in a disc that opens up wider. And you filter, you can filter that harsh light and shoot botanical portraits or even shoot some sort of medium environmental botanical portraits. Um, in hot light, and you could actually, you could probably spend all day, even in, in this horrible high contrasty, contrasty light, um, shooting botanical portraits. So there's plenty to do during the day. I mean, I would, if you've been up since four, I would, I would suggest a siesta <laughs> after lunch, um, and then there's always the evening. And and you know, the evening evening light is equally low uh, and beautiful in a different way. It's usually much warmer. Um, and there's not the temperature inversion, so there's not, not the moisture in the air if you're near a coastal garden where you get this, this you know, the, the cool and warm mixing in the early morning and everything is sort of dew moistened and light is breaking through and forming bands in the, in the, in the, in the mist. You know, it's a very particular kind of light. The, the, the evening light is, is, is sort of warmer and more general. The shadows are nice and long, and it's a, it's, everything is can be backlit as well. The plants are a little tuckered out sometimes. You know, they spend mm -hmm. the whole day in the sun. They need a little bit of a rest. So, so um, it's a different kind of beauty. But it's, but it's, you know, you come back for that after 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 a day of um, of bright sunshine. You certainly come back to the garden later in the day. Well, as you're saying that, I'm realizing that uh, one needs a tripod <laughs> because you can really shoot pretty late uh, if you adjust you, the color. Yeah, although I have to say. Um, I am shooting less and less with a tripod lately. Hmm. 
And one of the one of the things that I, I, I do mention in the in, in the one of the back chapters of the book on on, um, on cameras and equipment is to encourage people to get the fastest possible lenses. Um, well, tell, lenses tell us what that means. Well, a fast lens meaning that the aperture on the lens, which is a diaphragm that closes and opens, and along with with film speed or or you know uh, digital film speed now, and and the speed of your shutter are these three elements that control your exposure, which is what you're always trying to get just right in your camera. So a fast lens means that it opens up very, very wide. And the numbers of fast lenses are anywhere from 2.8 on down. So 2.8, 2, 1.8, 1.4 is a very, a lot of my lenses are 1.4, F1.4, which means they're very, very open. And they can take in a lot of light very quickly. And that means that at low light, I can take in a lot of light very quickly with my lens wide open, uh, and still shoot it at a at an f at a at a speed, uh, a shutter speed that I can handhold, and I don't necessarily need a tripod. Hmm. Um, and this is a great advantage because you know I used to shoot much more deliberately with a tripod with film because film was was um, you know often often slower to get the quality you wanted, uh, and digital sensors have gotten so. Uh, the quality is so much higher now that you can really shoot very fast, and you can even shoot. Um, I've, I've shot up to an 800th of a second and not had a lot of, um, you know, grain or distortion mm. on these larger sensors, sensors on digital cameras. So I and I love the freedom of not having to have a tripod. I love the freedom of being able to hold my camera underneath something and not even look through the look through the lens and have it on on an auto exposure mode and aperture priority. So wide open shooting underneath something, above my head, behind something. I mean, it's just pixels after all, you know, and it's megapixels. <laughs> and it's not film that has to be reloaded and, and, and worried about the expense of, I mean, digital cards now come in 32 gigabytes. You could hold 5,000 images on one card. Right. And, and often just, do. <laughs> and you often do. Well, that's another point I should just bring up quickly is that I, I really tell people with digital in particular to be a rigorous editor. I mean, a big part of digital photography in the garden and, and anywhere, frankly, is to, is to really go through what you have after a shoot and say, yes, no, maybe, no, 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 yes. There should be more no's than yes. Well, I want to get into that with you in a moment. But sure. uh, if we go, yeah. but go back to the aperture, uh, I almost always have my camera set on, on its aperture setting because I want to control the depth yeah. of field. And that's what you're yeah. talking about, the amount of the image that's in focus from very little, which is what you would happen when you have that lens wide open, uh, a slice right. of a detail of a scene, uh, mm -hmm. just a little bit in focus, uh, to having, if you at the other end of it, with like F22, when the lens is right. closed down, then you have enormous depths of field. So the foreground elements yeah. and the distance might be in focus as well. Mm -hmm. uh, now, I think one of the... One of the hallmarks of a Matthew Benson photograph is that tiny area of focus. So you <laughs> you sort of told us how you do that, and I've seen yeah. photographs that are done by you, and a lot of the ones that you do, that you convert to sepia, because I, I read that you don't shoot in black and white; you shoot you know black and white setting now, that mm -hmm. you shoot in color. So you have the option of keeping that color mm -hmm. image, uh, but you might turn it into black and white or into sepia. But you have very little in focus, but sometimes they're sort of, it's sort of smudgy. And I'm wondering mm -hmm. whether you do that in Photoshop or do you ever use a lens baby or something like that? 
Yeah, well, let me let me sort of tell you why I do that. I mean, my 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 theory, and it's it's not you know something taught; it's just something learned empirically, just working, is that um, you know I I have this idea that I always want to see like a camera because I think the visual brain is intrigued by how it doesn't see every day. And every day we're constantly bombarded visually. We use our eyes; it's our most uh, active sense. And we see 130 degrees, and we always see in focus if we have our glasses or contacts or whatever we need. And it's really a conceit of the camera that it can see in and out of focus. And the mind loves that kind of visual play. I mean, it's not used to looking at things out of focus. So there's, it's, it's an intriguing, you know, I think of the... I think it's a visual brain, almost like a puppy dog. It wants to play with things. You know, wants to play with. <laughs> that's why macro photography is so cool. Cause we don't see things that close, and the brain is 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 turned on by that. It's like, oh wow, that's what it looks like that close. Because we can't actually focus that close with our own eyes. So by the same token, we can't see selectively with focus. So that's what makes it intriguing to me. I also like the idea of suggesting and not telling. I like to, you know, this kind of salt idea where if you see a part of something and not the whole thing, you still know what it is. So if I have a very narrow slice, as you said, in the garden of some part of a border, you can tell that that, that planting of perennials continues a little bit without it actually being in focus. You don't have to see it in sharp focus to know what it is. And I think the mind is more engaged by that. You know, that's what the Impressionists were in, interested in, besides light. They were interested in just in form and not not really literal form, just sort of suggested form. So I like what selective focus allows me to do. It also leads the eye. You know, obviously your mind is intrigued by out-of-focusness, but it also immediately wants to go to what's in focus. It's mm -hmm. just, you know, it, and uh, that's just how the brain works. So you can lead, if you're interested in one part of the garden, obviously that's the part that's in focus. And you can lead someone through one of your images through to some focus point. And I like images to have depth and, 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 and be, be dimensional. So you move through a garden. If the foreground is out of focus, you move through it like you're walking through the picture and to a point of focus. And maybe it's a, and, and so there's a sense of movement as you look at this very flat object, a photograph. You, know, you can move into it because the focus is, um, is very selective and there's, there's areas that are in and out of focus. And your mind knows that that ends up creating a lot of depth. Well, that's a, um, it's also something that I find often when you see a photograph like that, you get more of a feeling of what the garden is like than you might with the long shot. I'm speaking with Matthew Benson, whose new book is The Photographic Garden, Mastering the Art of Digital Garden Photography. Now, we talked about so many things. Uh, one great thing about digital photography is that you can experiment endlessly, which you were sort of getting to there, and you don't have to worry about reloading or the expense of processing film. But people think that digital photography is less expensive than film photography, but I can tell you that it's not true <laughs> because of the hours and hours we spend, as you said, editing, getting rid yeah. of some of the photographs, and then processing almost every single shot. Well, every single shot. There's, If you shoot in raw, if you have a single lens reflex, you know, uh, a semi-professional yeah. or good amateur camera, 
especially with interchangeable lenses, every single photograph has to be processed, has to be dealt with, and it takes an enormous amount of time. People yeah. will use Lightroom if they have PCs or Aperture if they have Macs, and then you move on to Photoshop. Uh, but I'm wondering, you, you said the thing about 5,000 pictures, editing them. Can you say in a, in a minute or so how you handle the workflow? Yeah, I'm going to say, I, I, I guess, firstly, uh, and this is going to be heresy for some people, but I do not shoot raw. And I'll, oh I'll, tell you my argument, I'll tell you my argument for that. And I obviously shoot, you know, for reproduction in books and magazines all the time. When I was shooting film, I would buy, and I'm just going to name some films here, I would buy Velvia or Provia or Plus X or whatever. I would choose the film based on its qualities and the way it dealt with light, whether it was a flatter saturation, whether it was a Velvia and it was deeply saturated reds and greens or whatever it might be. So there's an aesthetic choice uh, right away when I was shooting film. And then when I shot film, I would use maybe a warming filter, an 85 series filter on a, on a lens. So I was never shooting raw with film. I was always shooting with some personality uh, that, that was filtering what I was recording. So, I, you know, by extension, why would I shoot completely neutrally with my digital SLRs? Um, you know, and then have to go, as you said, into post-production and deal with histograms and color and, and try to get things back to where they were. You know, I guess as a, if I were shooting things that needed to be literally translated and, um, and, and completely uh, color accurate constantly, uh, and, and, and doing that kind of work, I would, I would maybe shoot raw if the client demanded it. But I, I think gardens are much more, photographing gardens is a more personal, uh, subjective uh, experience. You have your own narrative in the garden. Uh, and, and I think your film uh, or, your, or your, how you shoot um, uh, obviously is an extension of that. So I don't shoot, I don't shoot raw, first of all. What do you I shoot? I just shoot uh, high-res JPEG. Really? Um, yeah, and I find no loss in image quality, and I don't have my camera changing much at all. I shoot Adobe RGB, um, uh, and uh, I get a lot of everything that I see in post-production on my computers um, is what I saw in the garden, you know, except it's maybe more so because I'm interested in evoking something you know already seeing like a camera you're, you're framing the garden you know we don't see the world through a rectangle so so there's or with, already or with one eye or, or with one eye or selectively focused or in, in some ways we don't see the world as backlit as i like to shoot gardens because uh, our eyes can't can really deal with that amount of light coming in so the camera's already doing all this stuff that separates it from reality it has its own way of seeing the world and then seeing the garden world so I, I, by extension, take my, my digital settings on my camera, and I don't. I, I allow them to also be a little bit interpretive, which which raw isn't. Raw is very uh, uh, has a, it's a very deliberate, uh, direct sort of facsimile of what's there. But anyway, so I go into editing with all of my JPEGs, and they're very high res. I have cameras with very large sensors because obviously I'm interested in image quality. And if I come back from a shoot and there's 3,500 images, I shoot a lot. Uh, a lot of pixels, you know, and then uh, I will go through everything very quickly and immediately star my images. And there's post-production programs like Lightroom and Aperture. I happen to use Adobe Lightroom. And I immediately get rid of two-thirds of the shoot, I would say. Mm -hmm. 
um, because there's a lot of repetition. There's a lot of changing aperture in one scene. I'm always making sure I have enough range. If I want more in focus or less in focus, I make sure I'm covered. Um, and then I, I really think editing, I think you have to really be a rigorous editor of your, of your work. There's nothing that, you know, almost uh, nauseates me more than thinking about all these useless megapixels on my hard drive just yeah. sitting there because I can't. I don't have the I don't have the the nerve to get rid of them. Yeah. And I think lear, learning to take learning to shoot a lot and then really uh, getting rid of a lot and getting it off your disk, not just you know getting it off your hard drive completely. Not not just having a little safety box somewhere either. I mean, save enough so that you really have enough, but don't save too much. Well, that's incredibly good advice for me. Uh, okay, we've been talking about some professional things, and of course you are a professional photographer, but now what if you do not have a single lens reflex camera? What if you have a point-and-shoot camera? Can you still make artistic photographs? Yeah, uh, and you know, these digital cameras, whether they're the ones that are you know, the size of a deck of cards, or it's your iPhone, or your, your iPad, um, are getting more sophisticated. Uh, you know, there are apps for all the all the uh, uh, Apple products now that, that allow you to simulate uh, sort of different camera formats. Um, well, with backlighting, for example, uh, something people usually don't realize, if you point your iPhone towards a garden scene and, and the light is in front of in front of you and the plant material is in between you and your iPhone and you're backlighting, you're basically shooting towards the sun. Uh, if you tap the screen, a little square will appear. If you tap the screen on a more shaded part of your of your image, the iPhone will will take that as the right exposure, and it will then expose for that, which is what you want in focus. All of your plant material, you're, you're not interested or want properly exposed. You're not interested in exposing the sky correctly, because then everything else will be dark. So um, that's that's one thing you can do with with the simplest of cameras, which are these iPhones. Now, with a little point and shoot camera. There are a couple of things. You can set it on program mode, not auto. And program allows you to use something called exposure compensation. And exposure compensation is a small dial. The, the little uh, icon is usually a plus and minus symbol. And if you press that, and it's on usually on the toggle switch, um, a little bar gra or a little graph will show up with zero and then minus one, minus two, plus one, plus two. And you want to tell your camera to you want to go to plus one or plus two and overexpose your image. You're, you're, you're telling your camera, your camera's saying, hey, it's really bright. I'm going to be at this exposure. You're telling the camera, I know it's really bright, but that's the sun. That's the beautiful <laughs> sun coming up. And I want you to focus on the beautiful plants. Don't worry about the sun. And your sky will be blown out and glowing, and then the plant material will be properly exposed. So that's something you can do with point and shoot. Also, these small point-and-shoot cameras, there's even, I believe, an aperture priority mode now. So you can say to your camera, I want you to shoot at a wi the widest aperture possible. And these, some of these cameras have a 2.8 lens or, or faster, and it will lock in at that aperture. And then it will just control uh, uh, the shutter speed. It'll, my, some of these cameras have shutter speeds of, of four or five thousandths of a second, which means you can shoot very wide open into almost pretty bright light, and it'll just shoot really, really fast so that the, there's a proper exposure. So there's on the dial, and I, I suggest to people that they don't go and read their photography manual like they're going to read a book or, or something, you know, that they go out and work with their camera, experiment a little bit, and then if they have a problem or have something they want to do, go and look that up specifically 
uh, in the index, like how to set aperture priority, right, how to set right. exposure compensation. Think of the manual as a as a place to find answers, not as a good read. <laughs> I've been speaking with Matthew Benson, whose new book is The Photographic Garden, Mastering the Art of Digital Garden Photography. A, a very good book, especially for people who love art yeah, yeah. and people who love pho photography and people who love gardens. And it's packed with many, many photographs from your years of being in gardens, experiencing gardens and photographing gardens. And I want to thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Ken. Thanks for having me. One of the great things about taking photographs of your garden is that you can have a record and sometimes a permanent record of the things that took place. You can also photograph a few things that you might want to change. Make a journal of your garden and make a photographic journal. And if you want to make art, or even if you want a career in photography, I certainly recommend the photographic garden. And frankly, if you're interested in, in making photographs of almost anything, I highly recommend this book for a, a certainly a personal point of view. You can see some of the photographs we talked about today online at kendrews.com. And be sure to join me again next week for another guest on Kendrews Real Dirt, The Garden Show.